Hey, it's Tanya from Real Food Media, here to tell you that, yes, it's really true, five years have gone by since the last farm bill. The last one was signed by President Trump in December 2018. Doesn't that seem like about 12 lifetimes ago? Now, I've been doing food policy work for a minute, and to say that the farm bill is not my favorite policy area to work on would be an understatement. It's massive, it's complicated, it's in the vice grip of large corporations, and trying to get people to care about it always feels like an uphill battle. This year feels different, though. I don't know if it's the pandemic, the groundswell and frontline worker organizing, the visibility of racial justice, or all of the above, but it finally feels like we can make some inroads towards a food and farm bill shaped by a more diverse set of voices and responsive to our community's most urgent economic, health, and environmental crises. I would encourage you to check out the Heal Food Alliance's website. That's Heal, H-E-A-L, foodalliance.org for information on what's at stake in this year's farm bill negotiations and how to get involved. If, like me, you need a refresher every five years on what even is the farm bill, there's a great book by Dan Imhoff and Christina Badaraco called The Farm Bill, A Citizen's Guide, from Island Press. It's basically a 200-page infographic. It's super accessible. You can also just keep listening right now to hear my 2019 Real Food Reads interview with Dan about the history of the Farm Bill and why it matters. Enjoy, and happy Farm Bill organizing. I'm Tanya Kerson, and this is Real Food Reads, the podcast from Real Food Media where we talk to authors of some of the most interesting books today on the intersection of food, politics, and culture. On December 20th, 2018, President Trump signed an $867 billion piece of legislation that affects our everyday lives and the future of the planet in really important ways. But it kind of flew under the radar. The nearly 1,000-page bill is renewed every five or six years, and it plays a huge role in shaping our food system. We're talking, of course, about the Farm Bill. Now, if you haven't nodded off at the mere mention of the Farm Bill, let me tell you that this month's featured book paints a fascinating picture, literally with a bunch of really great illustrations, of the history of the Farm Bill, how it works, and why it matters. Dan Imhoff is here with me today to talk about the Farm Bill, A Citizen's Guide. Dan is an author, musician, and artisan food producer who's written multiple books about the food system. He's co-founder of the nonprofit communications agency Watershed Media and president and co-founder of the Wild Farm Alliance, which works to promote healthy, viable agriculture that protects and restores wild nature. Dan, thanks for joining us on Real Food Reads. Thanks for having me. Okay, so before we dive in, I just have to ask this. Your bio mentions that you're an artisan food producer. Can you tell us what kind of artisan food you produce? Yes. Um, I live in Northern California, and I have been living in a rural area, living a homestead lifestyle for probably more than two decades. We produce olive oil, a lot of apples, apple cider, apple cider vinegar, and wine. We have chickens, a rather large garden, 
and really live a lifestyle that draws on a lot of the things that we can do on our own here. I think if you ask most people, you know, what what do you think the Farm Bill is or what it's about? I could imagine that folks might say, well, it, it's about growing healthy food to feed our population and, and doing it in a sustainable way. But what we learn in your book, of course, is that the Farm Bill mainly focuses on a handful of industrial, what we call commodity crops, and primarily feeds uh, livestock and gas tanks instead of people, and that the fruits and vegetables known known in the Farm Bill as uh, quote-unquote specialty crops are more or less ignored. Is that right? And can you explain the logic of this for us a little bit? The farm part of the Farm Bill has really traditionally been focused on commodity crops and really storable commodities. There's solid reasons for it. In the old days, in the early days of farm supports, before we just wrote checks to landowners, there used to be a lot of back and forth between government and the recipients of, of subsidy programs. And, and really, in the, in the early days, it was about making sure that farmers had enough credit, had enough money in the beginning of the seasons to plant a crop. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the season, they could sell their crop and pay those loans back, or they could just forfeit their crop to the government that would hold it in storage until the markets turned around or until it was sold or distributed. And that's the way the subsidy system worked. Okay. And fruits and vegetables, so-called specialty crops, were not ignored, but they weren't part of the farm bill for a number of reasons. First of all, they weren't really storable. And secondly, the the growers of fruits and vegetables never really lobbied very hard to be part of those farm programs. You know, in preparing for this conversation, I, I came across um, a study, maybe you're familiar with, a, a 2016 study that showed that, you know, study participants who ate more foods from crops that received federal subsidies were associated with higher levels of of diet-related illnesses. You know, you talk about the history of why the focus on these storable commodity crops as opposed to specialty crops. But I'm wondering what, you know, what the impact is on health. I mean, I think this is one of the most frequent critiques that we hear, you know, especially from the food movement of of the farm bill, that it's the sort of you know, corn syrup subsidy and that, you know, the the crops that we're told to eat more of, the fruits and vegetables are actually not the ones that receive uh, government support? I'm not familiar with the study. All I would say is that it's just an excellent example of how this bill with so much potential to really solve big problems like you just talked about in the food system is totally turned upside down. Mm. So, Rather than paying, you know, 20 to 25 billion dollars a year to farmers that could grow a a really balanced, diversified diet that the USDA Nutrition Department recommends people eat, instead, we're really focused on this very narrow area of the country that grows, you know, corn, cotton, wheat, rice, soybeans, dairy. And the real beneficiaries are the big food manufacturers and processors that, you know, take these commodities and turn them into these foods that are the cheapest in the, in the stores and 
that are making our poorest people who really need the most nutritional assistance even more unhealthy because that's the cheapest thing that they can afford Mm -hmm. um, among other factors that contribute to these nutritional diseases. As you say in the book, some people would probably be surprised to hear that the vast majority of farm bill dollars are dedicated to the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, known as SNAP? Yeah, if you, if you took a dollar bill and, you know, you divided it into the, like, let's just say three main parts of, of what the farm bill supports, about 75 to 80 cents would go to the food stamp and nutrition, the SNAP program. Up to 20 cents would go toward the commodity programs that we've talked about, the corn, cotton, wheat, rice, soybean subsidies. And then, you know, between two and five cents would go to conservation programs, as well as a host of other things that that are encompassed in this huge bill. But by far, the majority goes right now to to food assistance. And it really was not that way at around 2000 when I began to um, study this bill and put it into words and graphics that have become this series of books. Wow, yeah, I I imagine it must have increased quite a bit. I I watched an earlier interview with you where you stated that the SNAP made up about, I think, 40 to 50 percent of the farm bill. Yeah, it was about 50 percent way back in the early 2000s. And then, of course, we had um, we had the economic crisis of 2008, and then our population using food assistance really, really escalated. Up and I think 2016 was the highest, and it was 46 million people at some point in the year using food stamp program. And I think what's startling about that statistic is that only 60 percent of the people who are eligible actually apply. So there were oh, even wow. more people who could have applied that didn't. I mean, this really speaks to a deeper paradox, I think, within um, U.S. farm policy, which is, you know, something that, you know, Francis Moore LePay and others have been pointing out for decades, um, which is how can there be tens of millions of people going hungry or food insecure in a country that is the world's largest agricultural powerhouse and um, producing a a surplus that is exported around the world. You know, I mean, this has really been going on for at least 80 years. It speaks to the big inequalities in our country, in our, in our economy and culture and society, but, but also of challenges of agriculture Mm -hmm. Uh, and um, when I look at the farm bill from an agricultural side, you're really looking at a history of the problem of overproduction. Right. And it goes all the way back into the 19-teens and continued into the 20s. And there was a very unusual period of warm weather and wet weather in the Great Plains. And our farmers plowed up millions of acres that never should have been plowed, Mm. just trying to keep up. You know, the more they planted, the lower the price went and the more they planted and constantly looking for these markets. And then we got these catastrophic conditions of, of the Dust Bowl. 
and the Great Depression. And really, since that time, our farmers have been constantly trying to solve this problem of overproduction. And the Farm Bill programs did, for many decades, really attempt to do that by limiting supply, paying farmers not to farm, to keep some land out of production so that prices could stabilize. But really, in the last 30 or 40 years, those management controls were eventually phased out. And we're, we're still in the same position that we've been all along and still in this, despite you know how many trillions of dollars we've tried to throw at this problem, we still have you know, too much commodity agriculture and not enough mm. healthy food. You talk about in the book that um, originally in the 1930s, the Farm Bill's primary goal was really to address this issue, to, to produce an adequate food supply, but also to prevent an oversupply of crops, um, both for conservation reasons um, in the wake of the Dust Bowl and also keep prices stabilized for farmers. But that somehow over time, this completely got turned on its head and just started encouraging the production of of much more than we need. And is this something that, that happened related to, I would assume, free trade agreements? Because one would assume that you would only produce much more than you can consume if you have foreign markets for that surplus. You know, there used to be a real social compact with the farmer and farm supports, as you mentioned, in, in the early program years. It, it was really about credit, not about just paying money to a farmer. And also, in order to enroll in the program, you had to have a conservation plan for your farm. Okay. And that included erosion prevention. And also, you had to keep up to 25% of your land out of production. So you were keeping it. You were not plowing up land. You were making sure it was green all year long. You were keeping roots on the ground and the soil safe and secure you are also keeping potentially 25% of your crop out of the market that would make the prices go up. Right. There was a huge, you know, revolution in American agriculture between the 1930s and the 1970s. I think about 4 million family farms left the farmscape. So farms got bigger mm. and the government wanted to get more and more uh, large producers enrolled in their programs, and they didn't want to, you know, have these conservation um, standards and, and requirements, and they eventually got left behind. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, at a certain point, to deal with this problem of overproduction in the 60s and the 70s, we had a secretary of agriculture named Burl Butts, and his idea was we were going to export our way out of the problem. Right. Uh, and, and there were a few years that were very favorable to agriculture, and the boom was followed by a bust, at it, as it almost inevitably is. Mm -hmm. this, this is the cycle that agriculture is continually caught in, some kind of boom-bust culture. And, and really, our program's I think the tragedy of the programs right now and the challenge that we face, because this is our opportunity to fix them, is that right now the Farm Bill encourages farmers to make their planting decisions based on how many subsidies, dollars they can bring in. Okay. Rather yeah. than, you know, 
having farmers base their planting decisions on how they can be supported and incentivized for best practices and, and practices that kind of feed into a much more healthy national food and farming plan than we have right now. And the fact is, we really don't have one. There are a couple things I wanted to make sure I asked you about, and one of them was about the crisis right now that's affecting farmers and in particular dairy farmers. Just to kind of think about some of this analysis, looking at a specific case. So I was reading that Wisconsin alone lost almost 700 dairy farms in 2018 due to falling prices and and overproduction. Isn't this precisely the kind of thing that the dairy subsidies in the Farm Bill are intended to prevent? Well, they are, but the dairy industry, like the pork industry and the beef industry and the poultry industry, has gone through this incredible process of consolidation. Believe it or not, California is the number one dairy producing state in the country. Out in the Central Valley, we have these huge... 2,500 cow CAFOs, that, that's a confined animal feeding operation, that are the norm, hugely, hugely dependent on using groundwater and irrigated water to run these operations, incredible air emissions, not to mention animal welfare. And so our market is flooded and our small dairy farmers have had to really, you know, bite that bullet so to speak, that's probably a terrible metaphor, but they, they had to make this very hard choice of whether to get big or to get out. And there was an extremely compelling op-ed in the Washington Post in January, I believe, about a dairy farmer who had just sold his cows after you know, being a small dairy farmer for his whole adult life. Yeah. And just that because of the subsidy system, because it really supports the big producers over the little ones, that it's nearly impossible for a small family to create a life uh, with, with a small herd of cows anymore, dairy cows. And, and so a whole, a whole way of life is, is just disappearing. Yeah. And I think that's key. It's that it's not that as a result of these dairy farm foreclosures that, you know, we're going to be producing less milk or have fewer dairy cows. It's merely that the small farms are disappearing and the large industrial polluting greenhouse emitting farms are getting even bigger. I I thought that one of the real ironies of, of the trade deal that President Trump announced with Canada was one of the victories was that he had opened the Canadian market for U.S. dairy products. <laughs> and and the, the cruel irony is that you know, for many, many decades, the Canadians have had supply management um, practices in place so that they weren't overproducing and supports that did support many, many smaller producers. And so suddenly now, you know, they have to um, accept our overproduction, you know, rather than we try to find ways to, to control our supply and find much, much less pollutive ways to produce milk. Right, right. It really seems like kind of a, you know, that game of, of whack-a-mole, um, just not really addressing the, the root causes of the problem, but displacing it onto others. 
Absolutely. You mentioned a statistic in your book that nearly 2 billion tons of cropland soil are lost every year in the United States. So it it seems that if we continue on this track of kind of boom bust agriculture and plowing up fence row to fence row, um, as you describe, are, are we heading towards a tipping point where we can no longer even grow enough to feed ourselves, much less export, or, or are we headed towards another dust bowl? Well, the Dust Bowl should always be very close in our minds, <laughs> especially when we're thinking about the Farm Bill, because, I mean, it, it is kind of the magical period in the Farm Bill's history when, I mean, there are people on the ground, our great conservationist Aldo Leopold was working with farmers in Wisconsin on these early conservation programs. The amazing thing about that 2 billion tons of soil statistic is that that's after the mid-1985 Farm Bill started to really ramp up conservation programs again. So without the conservation programs, it would be much, much worse. I think our real challenge is because soil is our number one non-sustainable, most important human resource for survival, our goal should really be like, how do we get it down into the hundreds of millions of tons? How do we have these new farming incentive programs that work to keep the soil, you know, on the earth and not washing down our rivers and, and blowing away? You know, the Farm Bill is, is this huge legislation, as you said, it's divided into many different spending categories called titles. Title one is the commodity title that that gives money to farmers for, you know, all kinds of um farming subsidies as we know of, mm-hmm. then two is the conservation title. That pays farmers for really things that the market doesn't pay them for, for having habitat you know, throughout their farmland, for adopting practices that reduce chemicals and energy and help to clean up waterways. Mm-hmm. Somehow, we need to get the Title I dollars, the farm supports, all into the conservation title. So suddenly we're just supporting ecologically appropriate farming practices, period. And somehow wean ourselves from this agriculture of of huge, huge corporate farms making really bad decisions. Right. Yeah. I mean what I what I hear you saying is that the farm bill is in essence doing the opposite of what it should be doing, <laughs> which is promoting a sustainable, non-polluting, non-toxic agriculture that that doesn't erode our soils and, and contaminate our water. I, I wonder if we could even imagine a goal of not only losing less of our soil, but actually building soil. <laughs> you know, it's it, our vision is extremely important, and it, it amazes me just how satisfied our legislators are with so little, with so little reform. We're being completely economically irresponsible in the use of this money, you know? And again, I I keep coming down to it's a hundred billion dollars that, that we can use to do good, to incentivize um, practices and, and, and situations across our food system that the market doesn't, doesn't, you know, and won't do. And, and it's kind of our legacy. It's our stewardship legacy. It's how, 
how we treat the land today, how we treat our rural communities today, and how we consider, you know, we should be fed as a nation, especially our kids. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I just looked at a piece that you wrote about the most recent farm bill and um, it could have been worse, but it's really demonstrated a a lack of imagination, I think, are the words that you used. I was wondering if you could share some of your thoughts on the the farm bill that just passed. Um, I know that there were a number of controversial proposals, like increasing requirements for food assistance recipients and further reducing the support farmers get for conservation. How did this shake out in the final version of the bill? You know, I'm a critic and maybe I don't give enough credit to those people on the committees working so hard to make sure that the farm bill didn't come out even worse, that mm. you know there were stricter work requirements for people who need food assistance, or that they took away important uh, regulations on really dangerous pesticides, or they opened up California's forest to be completely exploited in the name of fire protection. These things were real. And, and I think you have to realize that the conservatives at this level, they pit, play a very, very tough game. I was suspicious whether or not a lot of these proposals, riders weren't really serious. They knew that they weren't going to pass the Senate, but they became very powerful lobbying chips mm. so that when the final bill was passed, the reformers or the people holding on to a more sane bill could say, well, at least they didn't include, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Right. Every five years, these things come around, and we need long-term vision with buy-in so that we can see every five years whether or not we're getting closer to those goals or farther away from them. And I think that's really our challenge is to, to have some imagination. What kind of a food system do we want? Right. And and how are we going to use this $100 billion a year to achieve it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's ostensibly the role of the of the food movement, right? The food justice and farm justice movement. Yeah. And I mean, this is really hard work. And <laughs> right now, I think the average is about $120 billion every year goes into the lobbying for this bill. And that's from the, you yeah. know, that's from the other side. That's not from the good food movement side. And if we were to like muster 10 or $15 billion, I think the other side would just simply increase the amount that they're putting <laughs> in. Right. At some point, the, the legislators have to wake up and realize this is a really important vote that shouldn't be traded away because they don't understand it. I mean, this bill affects everybody three mm. times a day. More importantly, it's like the only safeguard that we have for, you know, the poorest among us, but also our agricultural lands, which our kids are going to completely depend upon right. and which already, you know, um, species that, that live throughout our rural lands also desperately need habitat that's protected through the farm bill. So it's not like I wake up every morning and just can't wait to dive into food policy. <laughs> it's something that I've studied for many, many years. And, and you can't help but not let go of this potential for it to, to change the way we do things for the better. Exactly. Well, I really appreciate you calling in and talking to me today. This has been a really interesting conversation. 
Well, thank you very much for your time and your good questions. And yeah, I, I hope in the end, people realize that they, they can learn about this and they can somehow bring it into their sphere of activism and, and reaching out in, in the political sphere. Thanks for listening to the Real Food Reads podcast. You can join the book club and find out about future book selections, author interviews, and other resources at realfoodmedia.org.